Welcome to Hispanic Marketing and Public Relations, HispanicMPR.com. This is Elena DelVal, and my guest is Alex Vorobiev, who is author of Transform Your Company. Today we will discuss how to get your company's momentum going again. Alex is Chief Executive Officer of the Alex Vorobiev Company, a financial cleanup firm since 2003. He has counseled, coached, and served as a cleanup chief financial officer and president of telecommunications, aviation, and aerospace, hospitality, healthcare, and outsource staffing companies. He has led successful turnarounds in as little as three months. Transform Your Company, Escape Frustration, Align Your Business, and Get Your Life Back was published in 2017. Alex is the publisher of the semi-annual Confident ROI magazine, published in the spring of 2018, and weekly Confident ROI radio show. Alex, welcome. Thanks, Elena. Nice to be on the show. When we talk about getting your company's momentum going, are we thinking about the kind of momentum that a new company has when it first gets started and everybody's all bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, or is it another momentum? It's the momentum after that. I generally work with companies that have been in existence at least 10 years, oftentimes between 10 and 30 years, and that new new feelings worn off, and oftentimes it's been replaced with more of resignation of of how challenging things are and how to how to change that uh, feeling and mindset and actually get more momentum instead of just doing the same thing over and over again. So who are we talking to? Is it is it the chief officer in the company, sort of the CEO? Is it several executives? Is it everybody? What Who are we addressing this conversation to today? Sure, this conversation is addressed to whether you're the owner of the company, you're a leader in a company, or you're just the leader within your area of, of a company, or just a department of one. Because it, it happens within any size organization, uh, dysfunction tends to slide into an organization. And the number one thing, anytime someone's within an organization, they have the power to at least influence their part of the organization. It's ideal at, at the top of the organization, but um, I find and I counsel people early in their careers how to identify a company to go to work for versus one not to, and what are the signs to look for that uh, you might be entering an organization that's, that's going to be dysfunctional and frustrating to work in. What are those signs? Those signs are it's, – it's subtle because people – companies are very good at hiding it during the interview process. They uh, they can they can make it sound good, but getting the the underlying problem I saw when I cleaned up financial messes of companies was I could get my arms around the numbers relatively easy, but w- what to do about it and how to eliminate things that were losing money and do more things that were making money that was where the challenge was because often it boiled down to people had different answers to important questions in their head. So, you know, what is the most important thing right now? When you have a leadership team, 
and they all have a slightly different answer of that, they're, they're going to be pulling in different directions. And that's what shows up in dysfunctional meetings, in email arguments, and it makes it difficult for different departments to coordinate their actions. So it's disagreements about key, key things that uh, answers to questions that people use to make decisions and their daily actions within a company. Isn't there some degree of disagreement that's naturally occurring, especially the larger the company becomes and or the more complex the product or service that the company is in the business of producing? Isn't that sort of a byproduct of that? Yes, it's exactly it. It's because it's natural that every person has a brain, every person's taking in inputs, uh, seeing what's going on, and they inevitably come to their own conclusion. And that's why dysfunction tends to slide into a company, because everyone's looking at what's going on, and unless they're, they consciously try to coordinate and have discussions about what they're seeing and coordinate and uh, calibrate their efforts, they're naturally going to start to slide apart. There's not a, you, you rarely hear examples of, you know, this company was not doing well, and it just magically all of a sudden started doing great. I mean, a small company can win a big contract and it can help, but a big company, for it to really change, if you look at those stories, you know, there's American Icon about Ford and its turnaround in the, two, in the 2000s. It was about coordinating their efforts and having a conversation about what was important and what things they needed to focus on. And like Ford, they got rid of all their international brands so they could focus on their on the Ford brand. But that was a lot of internal conversations with the, the, the family that owned the company or the majority of the voting rights and people within the company. And, but it took a lot of conversations to get there. So if you are looking at a company as a potential employer or perhaps you're interested in investing, for whatever reasons you are interested in doing business with the company, what are these signs beyond just getting different messages? Is there something else? Are there other red flags that give you the hint that something's not quite as it should be? Well, it's, it's nothing like asking people for their perspective and seeing what there is. And, and so like in an interview or what I do for companies is I'll do an assessment and I'll, ask, I'll meet with different people of so their leadership team and ask them questions by themselves, what is most important right now, and get a sense of where they're coming up. And oftentimes it's a little bit different. But it's also the feelings within the company. Uh, oftentimes the leader, they're, they're got, they're, they can see where they want to go in the vision. And oftentimes um, the team around him, they're scared. And they're afraid to communicate that. So it's that trust within the team to communicate what's going on is critical. And trust doesn't happen accidentally. It happens when there's communication, when people have the competency to do their jobs and also the character to deliver what they're doing. But it, when, it, when there's a gap and people aren't um, articulating it, I was just working with a company and the leader had 
made this great poster about where where they wanted to go with the company over the next 10 years, and it was a mountain, and it looked great. And when I talked with the other people on the team, they really, they were scared. And they didn't quite know how to, to go up the first level of the foothills of the mountain. And once we, we got that out on the table, then it was a lot easier to talk about, okay, what's next? So let's talk a little bit more about this this transformation that we began with, the idea that you can go back to that momentum that you've gotten, I don't know, taken the wrong turn in the road. How does this happen? You start out with enthusiasm. You start out thinking, yes, we can. And somewhere along the way, you get to know we really can't. How does that happen? Well, that that happens in that you're you're taking it you're you're doing certain things. If it's a if it's a store and it's selling products and it's getting the same results, right? And it's it's about changing its inputs. If you're if you're constantly doing the same things and getting the same results, uh, okay, what are, what are we going to change? And the what companies that get their moment or keep their momentum is they're looking to see what kind of results are we getting if they're not the results we want what should we change the the good the great books jim collins uh, built to last they're essentially books about how leaders were able to look at the feedback they're getting okay what's working what's not working and let's do more of what's working let's either fix what's not working or stop doing it that questioning, because a lot of times people that started a business, they were an expert in that type of thing, and they start doing it and doing the same thing over and over. Well, how do you evolve it? How do you how do you get to a bigger audience? And that's about taking the feedback and using it in a productive manner to, to evolve the outputs, because our brains are programmed to, to handle 99% of what they process non-consciously. We just don't, it doesn't have the energy to, to process everything with a conscious thought. So it takes energy and thought to say, okay, what are we going to do different? It's a lot easier just our brains program, just keep doing what we've been doing. So we're, we're kind of on this, on this uh, sliding scale into, into doing what we've always done unless we expend the energy to try to do something different. Is that a little bit sort of like the concept of staff who get promoted to their level of incompetence where people are good at what they do and so they keep getting promoted and promoted until they get to a point where they're no longer good at what they do? It, it can. I mean, it, it, if someone started, a, let's take someone starting a company to, and if they did construction and did framing of houses. They could frame houses, but at a certain point, if they needed to manage people doing other jobs framing houses, that's a different skill set. And if it's not going well and they don't try to get new skills or deal with it differently, um, yeah, they've kind of reached that peak level, right? And they've reached what their current skills will help them do. So, yes. How do you break the cycle 
because we see in general, as you were talking about, how our brains are designed for certain patterns of behavior. Most people are resistant to change. We get to this place where we're comfortable and we become entrenched. How do you dislodge a team from those patterns of behavior where they're stuck in a rut and not looking at new ways of doing things, not considering new options so that you can get some of that back on track? Sure. One is recognizing that it's, it's a physiological thing with our brain. It wants to run the same same patterns and software over and over again. So once we recognize that, okay, it's actually a learned skill to to pay attention and to rethink things. And, and I, I get, come back to the Jim Collins work because, one, it's, well, it's widely read and a lot of people have, have heard about it. These executives, what they had was that ability, they had the learned skill of interpreting things and not just doing things because they've been doing them. A lot of them were sort of outsiders to their industry or weren't necessary. Some were, I think, like general counsels. So they were just they had more of a questioning mindset. And so one of the first things to do is listen to your inner dialogue when you get feedback that isn't positive, when a project's late or it's over budget or a customer's upset. Listen to your internal dialogue there. Are you asking a question like, okay, why is this? What's the root cause? Or your brain likes to use shortcuts. He likes to use biases like, oh, that's because our competitor plays dirty or we're just, you know, we, we're just not as good as we once were or it's coming up with statements instead of trying to figure out what's wrong. Because it's easier for the brain to try to rationalize something and dismiss it than to say, let's unpack that. Let's spend the mental energy to think about what we could do differently. How do you identify as you begin to interact with a company? Somebody comes to you and says, we think we have a problem. How do you make that determination when you're working with them? So as opposed to someone interacting with a company that they might be working for or working with, but you as a an outside consultant, how do you make that determination? And for our listeners, how can they look within their company and identify that they have a problem? What, a lot of what I do is just hold up a mirror. And I, I help them see maybe what they can't see. And I can do it if they don't like the image I hold up and they fire me, my, I don't have to move and get a new job, and my daughter doesn't have to change schools. But people within an organization, if they're giving feedback that the boss doesn't want to hear, that can cost them their job. That can cost them their future um, advancement. And so it's difficult. And so having the ability to, to point it to observe objectively, and that's what I typically do, is observe a meeting. Because nothing, Patrick Lencioni, he wrote The Five Dysfunctions of a Team, he pointed out that the, the best way, if you can only do one thing to assess an organization, and he's been in all kinds of organizations, successful, unsuccessful, if you can only do one thing, observe a meeting. Because that'll give you a sense of how they deal with problems 
or don't deal with problems? And what is the, how do they, what's the trust level? Are there emotional issues within the organization? Or is it um, where, it's going to give you the best starting point. Are there always the same red flags, or do these red flags vary from one company to the other? What I found was they're, they're nuanced. And, and a lot of times what why I wrote the book is there's a lot of great business concepts and tools out there to improve companies, but they don't really help a company find their specific starting point. And what I saw with financial problems, when companies had financial issues, and that was a symptom. The first thing I saw that was a, a root cause of this was disagreement about where the, uh, with answers to important questions. And I called it alignment. Did they agree on you know, what, what was important for the company to succeed? Who's their core customer? Uh, what's most important? Those things, if there was disagreement on that, there was likely to be dysfunction. And there's some great tools out there to help help um, companies answer those questions and align their efforts. But I found the second level below that, because some companies could work with a system like EOS or scaling up and answer those questions and align their efforts, and boom, they're off to the races. But other companies, they go through that, and they would answer these important questions, figure plan what was going to be coming up, who was going to do what, but inevitably they wouldn't get the results they wanted in the first quarter, the first year. And so that got to the second red flag is, okay, what do you do about it? Maybe you're not getting the sales growth you wanted. Is it a product? Is it a price issue? Is it a process issue? Is it a people issue? What needs to be um, addressed in order to achieve the objectives they've laid out? And that's the healthy relationship with feedback we've been talking about. And so that was um, an earlier starting line before trying to answer important questions. And the the and I, as I keep investigating this and kind of going down the rabbit hole, it really gets down to the individual and especially the leader, how they're functioning. And, and there's a lot of now neuroscience that is being applied to business and seeing how, hey, one of the big issues is chronic stress. They found, the neuroscientists have found that people under chronic stress, CEOs, founders of companies, people within all levels of companies now, because everyone's being asked to do more uh, with fewer people, that chronic stress weakens the, our, what, what they call their, our executive brain, the prefrontal cortex. And that helps us think and plan. So it's a hugely important part of our brain. But it also controls the emotional part of our brain, the amygdala. And under chronic stress, our amygdala gets stronger and our prefrontal cortex, our executive brain, gets weaker. And so that red flag of finding out, do people, are they under chronic stress? And is there something that they need to to address there before you can even get to, hey, how are we going to handle feedback better? Hey, how are we going to answer our what our strategy is and who our core customer is. If you're under chronic stress, your amygdala does things what they call career limiting behaviors. And um, 
that's that's a real red flag. So you're making bad decisions because you're overstressed. You're making bad decisions, but what the neuroscientists say is it's not you, it's your brain. And a lot of times people, you know, they say, oh, he's got horrible character. Well, he's been under chronic stress for years, and he's not getting, and he's not doing things that are helping him to recover. And so understanding that, that the starting line for this person is, is managing the stress. And, and that's something that neuroscientists is trying to catch up. And one of the things is about 27 years ago, they got the functional MRIs. So they're actually starting to see how the brain works and what parts of the brain are working or not working under things like chronic stress. Everybody is under some form of stress, whether external or internal or both. How do you know what is too much? Because you need an optimal level of tension or pressure in order to perform. So where's that dividing line, and how do you know if it's off kilter? Well, and that you you, you hit you hit something right on nail right on the head. Uh, the, the neuroscience talk about optimal levels of stress. And some people have higher levels than other other people. And it, it really comes down to the person observing it. And one of the things I always recommend uh, when we talk about relationships with feedback is asking people around you, you know, how, how do I handle it when, when things don't go according to plan? And people won't always tell you. I always say, ask your spouse. And your spouse is more likely to tell you if they feel it's, it, it's a safe, that you really want to know. I'd ask people around you. And you can also, your doctor can tell you if you have high blood pressure and if you're not sleeping well, you're likely suffering from stress. There's a number of things, uh, markers. You may also be uh, weight gain. And if the signs are there, then um, you can at least be aware of them. Because everything is being aware. All three levels of warning signs from companies not being aligned, to not dealing with feedback, to leaders just not having their brains at, at the ideal settings, all of this starts with being aware of it. Um, are you aware? Okay, we have, a, we have an issue. Okay, what can we do about it? You talk about starting from the inside in your book. Tell us what you mean by that. Sure. Typically, a company, when there's an issue, and when I was a cleanup CFO, and they bring me in, hey, we're losing money here, and help us figure it out. And we're having problems with our customers, we're having problems with our supplier. That's, that's the front lines of the business. That's where the business deals with the outside world. And I call the, and that's the outside of the business. And so, Typically, that's where the fires are. That's where people are going to focus their energy. But those are all a result of, of from the inside of the company, um, questions and, and important, important things that have to be decided. Because when a company doesn't decide who their core customers are or how they want to deal with their suppliers, and it's kind of up to people within the company to do it on their own, Inevitably, it's not coordinated, and it shows up on the front lines. So by answering important questions, you know, why does the company exist? What is it trying to offer? Unique, what unique offerings is it making? 
to whom, how is it going to do it, how is it going to be able to sell it, what type of people do they need in order to deliver those products out on the front lines, and then what do they do on the front lines going from the inside, those earlier questions I just talked about, to the outside makes it a lot easier to deal with the front lines of the company. But most times people get stuck, companies get stuck trying to put out the fires on the outside of their company instead of taking a step back and solving it on the inside. Take, for example, fire departments. Fire departments don't spend their the majority of their time fighting fires. They spend the majority of their time responding to medical uh, emergencies, but that's a different story. But for fires, they spend most of their time trying to prevent it in the construction of houses and inspecting things. They're, they're looking at, hey, what's the root cause of fires? What can we do to eliminate that so we don't have to fight as many fires? And they've been successful at that. You talk about understanding your bolt-on alignment tools and choosing your core alignment tools. What are you referring to? Well, business leaders, business people, they're bombarded with business ideas and concepts on how to improve their business. I mean, if, they, if they're listening to podcasts, they're getting my book, right? And, and they're getting other books, and they can go online. If they're reading their website, a business website, they're going to have books and ideas, how to improve your business. And we talked earlier about the tools like EOS and Scaling Up, which help you answer questions from the inside out um, for your company at all levels. Well, certain business concepts just focus on one specific part or one question or a series of questions. And I'll give you um, like a core, at the core bolt-on tool, Simon Sinek's uh, Start With Why is a very popular book. And it talks about, for a company, how to answer the question, why does this company exist? And so that it can attract the right people and also make decisions that are in alignment with that. And so that one little specific tool, why do we exist, that's a bolt-on tool for the company. Uh, Another bolt-on tool at the strategy level of company is a book called The Inside Advantage. And it it asks a couple questions. Uh, it, it asks the reader to answer a couple questions. Who's your core customer? What's your unique offering? How you're going to convince people to buy that unique offering? And But it focuses just on strategy, so that's a bolt-on tool there. Does that give you some examples of, of bolt-on tools? I think so. So the core is sort of self-defining at its core, and the bolt-on are added? The core, yeah, it goes from the inside out, and really the, the it's almost like a skeleton, a core alignment, because you go from the inside all the way to the outside of your business. And the bolt-on are different, different tools at each level within. In the book, I talk about there's five levels of questions that help align a company. And the bolt-on tools help with either one or a couple, but not all of those levels. One of the questions that you shared a moment ago, who is your core customer? I'm surprised at how very often 
companies, even large companies, are not truly in touch with the answer to that question. Do you find that to be the case? Sure. You know, that, that, that question's hand is never raised. It, you know, sometimes it is like marketing, but oftentimes that's a question. It's, you're never required to put that on a tax return. You're never required to answer that. And sometimes it is answered, but it does change. Um, the, the customers out there, you might, a company might sell to teenagers, but today's teenagers are not going to be the same as teenagers 10 years from now. They've found that each generation, the teenagers, what's important to them at 13 years old changes. And so it's, it gets back to the brain. You know, once we've answered the question, who's our core customer, or it's obvious who's our core customer, your brain doesn't want to spend the energy to re-ask that question because that takes energy and time. And so it's something that if it's not scheduled and it's not a discipline, um, it's likely to go unanswered and people will fill that vacuum. How do you get, if you find a company that's in this place where they haven't answered the question and they're ill-equipped to answer it, can you skip over it? Can you move forward? How do you get an answer Tell us a little bit about that. You can skip over it, and that's the default thing, and that's what leads to dysfunction and frustration with the organizations. They'd rather just, hey, we got to solve the problem with, with this customer group over here and the other customer group over there. It, people want, the brain wants to skip steps, and that's the bit that a lot of times the biggest challenge is just getting people to take two steps back, take a day or two off-site, and be able to, to think about these things and to question them and to question long-term assumption. And, and takes energy, and your brain, again, doesn't want to do it. But that's it's important. It's a lot easier to answer who your core customer is and what your unique offering is if you really understand, hey, why? what's our purpose? Why do we exist? What's, what's really important to us and our core values and how we're supposed to behave? Because... If you have core values, I was on a plane once, and um, the person worked for, I think it was Hormel, a big food company, and they were vegetarian. You know, how can they um, continue to work there? That that's a that's a incongruity that or, or cognitive dissonance that over time is going to really um, cause them problems. That goes a little bit toward the concept of the unique offering. Say, for example, what comes to mind as I was hearing you describe this, companies that over time remain static, say, for example, someone who manufactures landline phones or photocopiers or fax machines, these are all items that have slowly been disappearing from our lives as new technologies come in. What can these companies who are facing potential extinction as a company that's making a product that's no longer desirable, what can they do to transform themselves 
and identify a new unique offering when their original ones are losing track. Sure. And that's where it helps when you've answered the question before. Customer and offering are strategic questions, what I call survival questions. And But when you have answers before that, the level underneath that, the core questions, why does the company exist, um, Core what are the core values of the company? Um, how does it try to solve? What what things are it trying to solve? Big things are is it trying to solve or achieve in the marketplace? When it has those core answers, it can it can change, it can pivot. And Apple compute Apple it's not no longer Apple computer anymore. It's Apple. They dropped the computer. Um, they use their purpose in terms of coming up with technology that is a lot that is accessible to the masses that's elegant they've evolved the type of technology they provide you know people thought they were crazy coming out with the iPod not even the iPhone the iPod they thought they were crazy but they evolved that because they saw their customer they didn't their customer didn't say they need it but they saw their customer would like it they they could relate to their customer, and it, it was alignment with its its founding and why it existed. And people people accepted it because it was in alignment. Dell actually came out with a music player, Dell computer, before Apple. But it was a lot harder for people to understand, you know, why is Dell coming out with this? They're just, a cl- they make clunky computers. You know, why should I buy an, an I, uh, a music player from them? And so when it's in alignment, it's easier for a company to evolve and have new offerings. How can you guide your client to make this transformation? What kind of timeline is involved? What kind of staff involvement is a part of that, what kind of budget. Tell us a little bit more about what that process entails. Sure. Obviously, it depends on the on the size of the company and, the, and their issues. But what I find is you can – the number one thing is finding the unique starting line for the company because there's so many systems that I've seen. Because I would recommend systems when I clean up the finances. Hey, this system can help you. They all assume the company's kind of – no matter where they're starting, their system's so great, their framework's so great, it's just going to work. But what I've seen is it's really important to identify where you're starting from. You know, if you have a company with a leadership team that's been under chronic stress for a long time, they don't trust each other, they're starting in a different place than a company that's been going for seven years, they're, they're enjoying what they're doing, they trust each other, they don't need to start at the same place. So in order to figure out that and where they start and the kind of budget they need, it's important to do an objective assessment. And this is this is typically, depending on the size of the company, between one to five days worth of work in terms of observing meetings, doing interviews, um, putting it in a in a digestible format. So it's something that any size company uh, is is accessible and understanding where they can start from and in what sort of time frame, what's the most important thing to deal with first? Because you can't solve 
multiple problems simultaneously. It's what's the right sequence and what is what is achievable uh, depending on the leadership team um, capacity and capabilities. The assessment takes one to five days. How much does the entire process require? Well, it's, if it depends. I mean, a company that is as a small leadership team and it doesn't require, doesn't have multiple leadership teams underneath that. Um, if, let's say some companies start seeing results in, in three months. Some companies, they start seeing results in a year, um, but it takes three to five years to really, it, depending on how much dysfunction is there and how willing leadership is to confront issues. The, the num- one of the number one things is culture. If the culture is corrupt, if it's not well-defined, if there's multiple types of culture, until that culture is changed, then nothing's going to happen. And that, that can be, it depends on the, on the amount of, um, can, how many of the people they can realign with the culture and how many people they, they have to, to change out. For those of our listeners who maybe are struggling financially or prefer to handle these issues in-house, is there a do-it-yourself approach? Can they, for example, read your book and designate one individual or perhaps a committee to take this process as their own? Absolutely, and that's why I wrote the book. I wrote the book to give a sequence and framework to organizing all the concepts to improve your business and give you a a step-by-step on what you can do to improve the business. So the one thing you can't do is give it to one person and say, hey, fix the business. It's, It's a team sport. Business is a team sport about coordinating people's actions to achieving desired results. So it's gotta be something that the leadership team wants to do. The leader, the ultimate leader has to be totally bought in because people who are fine with the dysfunction, and there are always people within companies that are, they will want to get the leader to turn back. So the leader's got to be 100% bought in because people will test that resolve. Their brains would much rather keep things the way they are because it spends less energy. And it's they know what it is. There can be some people grew up in dysfunction. They're, they're fine with it. Um, so testing that resolve is critical, but you can do it on your own. The one thing I would suggest in, in, in making that pledge is you're going to hold a mirror up. You're really going to be able to see what, look in the mirror and see what's going on. Um, Katie Couric uh, just tweeted out this thing about, uh, she tweeted a picture of her face without makeup. You know, she's on TV all the time. But it was in regards to a story how people are getting plastic surgery so that they look as good as their photo does when they touch it up, when they do selfies and send it out. you got to be willing to look at, look in the mirror and, and, and be comfortable with that with you, your team, and be willing to go, okay, here's where we're at. How do you know? If this is something that you can do yourself, sometimes we overestimate 
what we can do because we don't, we're not objective, we're too close. And sometimes we underestimate what we can do, right, because we have greater capabilities than we realize. Is there some sort of a self-test that you can give yourself and perhaps your team to help you decide whether this is doable? Yes, there is. And it's uh, it's chapter two in my book, and I, I walk you through how to do an, a self-assessment. And I leave you with if you this process, and you might not like what the results you get, but if if you if you can't handle the it's basically a self-assessment of how you handle feedback, and asking you know you looking at how you think other people. Um, view you, view your relationship with feedback. Hey, how does, how does Alex handle it when things don't go well? You know, Alex handles it well. He tries to find out the root cause or Alex gets upset. And I talk about my poor relationship with feedback that I had that someone pointed out to me and that was really helpful. Um, and I, and I encourage the person to ask people around them hey, how do I handle things when things don't go according to plan? And if you can't handle that and you don't like the feedback of that, you probably, you know, you shouldn't go on. You shouldn't try to implement a lot of the business tools out there. Most business tools assume leaders have a healthy relationship with feedback, but that's a faulty assumption. So unless you're, you have a good relationship with feedback and and or you're committed to improving it, you can stop right there. That's a key no-go, go, no-go. And I've seen a lot of companies try to hire consultants and try to help them implement systems, but they're not interested in hearing the feedback that, hey, you have to rethink your product. You have to rethink your customer, uh, rethink some of the people on your team. They don't want to hear that. Then, all the great business concepts out there aren't going to work for you. So you can just stop right there and save your money. Are there companies, whether it's because of the type of product or service that they offer, or perhaps the type of company that they are, say, for example, a family-owned business or a very large business, I don't know, are there companies that don't lend themselves well to self-driving this process? And conversely, are there companies that are particularly good candidates to embark in this journey on their own? Uh, Companies, I think companies that are open to cultures, one of the things about Silicon Valley, not all of them, but a number of them, the, the culture within Silicon Valley is to, you have a big idea, you try it, you see if it works. It likely doesn't work, you, you, you tweak it, you pivot, you try different things, but then it ultimate, you keep trying to get something that's a big breakthrough. And so they've got a mindset of that. So from a company, it's almost like depending on the age of, of an industry that might have something. But I would, I would take it farther down to the individual leader. That's the most important thing. And you mentioned family-owned businesses. And what I noticed, with, we talked about relationship with feedback. One of the ways it manifests itself is what I call emotional no-fly zones. 
hey, we're not going to talk about the fact that the nephew is not very good at marketing, but he's in charge of it because the owner doesn't want to hear that. Well, and, and if you say something, that's that's going to limit your career. That's an emotional no-fly zone. You know, the owner's going to get upset or, or whatever. If there are emotional no-fly zones within your company, it is very difficult to do it on your own. If there's no emotion, you know, every everything's on the table. We are trying to find the best answers to move this company forward. That company has a lot more likelihood of success. And it's it's those ones that will answer those tough questions. And even when it's they're going to have to change directions and, hey, they really thought that their original direction was right. But you know what? The feedback shows it's not. We need to make this change. Those are the ones that can do it on their own. What role, what impact does diversity have in the corporate environment when you're addressing these transformational issues? So if you have a very diverse environment, you need to be aware, you need to be sensitive to a broader representation of people with different attitudes, different ways of doing things, and different cultures, if you will, not just corporate culture, but the individual cultures that make up the group. How can you do that? What importance, what role does diversity play in this process? Well, this is interesting. Google did this they wanted to have more effective teams and to, and Google's kind of always changing what it's doing. It's evolving and it couldn't figure out, you know, why are some teams more successful than others? And they have a lot of teams because they're coordinating different disciplines. And so they, they uh, initiated a study. They did a scientific study analyzing what groups did well and why. And what they found was it wasn't that, they were all alike. It wasn't that they were balanced personalities or different uh, educations or the same education or, or um, there wasn't one thing. It wasn't what they thought it was going to be. They thought, hey, it's all going to be the smartest people. What they found was, was it was groups where people felt safe to be themselves and express their opinions without um negative uh, repercussion or repercussions from that and and they found it being safe and they call it psychological safety and it wasn't what Google expected and it gets to um, the groups working together to make people feel safe and people have different triggers for that and one of the things you know you talked about diversity we're wired to we're either we either perceive ourselves to be in the in-group or the out-group. And we're, kind of, we're always looking at that. But when a group, regardless of their genetics, when they feel they're together, they're an in-group, and they can express their opinions and find the best answers, that's where diversity of ideas really is beneficial. So it's getting that point where people feel safe to do that. And it's a new part of neuroscientists and psychology to find that, but they're seeing how people are triggered, and when they don't feel safe, they won't share their opinions or their different ideas and concepts. 
And, and there's other one other thing on diversity. If you look at where great ideas come from, it's typically, if you look at Silicon Valley, look at the diversity of cultures that come to Silicon Valley and California as well. It's, it, it doesn't matter how long you've, you've been in California. Um, if you're here and you got good ideas and you contribute, you're much more likely to be able to contribute. Now there's parts of the, parts of the world where it mattered what, whether or not your ancestors came over at a certain time, when they got here, how many generations versus the quality of your ideas. And so getting to that point of, hey, we're just looking for people with good ideas, that's a cultural thing. Where can I, our listeners go, in addition to your book, where can they find additional information on this topic that they can become better informed, perhaps read articles, or case studies? Where can they learn more about this topic? Sure. They, what I, I started after the book is I wanted to bring the concepts to life with stories, with people actually implementing the tools that are talked about in the book, in the books from a core alignment tools to bolt-on tools. And so I started the book called Confident ROI, and it helps. It's for business leaders, whether you own, lead, or work in a company, trying to find the right business tool to advance your company. And it's um, it's a magazine, both a physical print, digital, and there's an audio version available at confidentroi.com. And while I was doing interviews of business leaders and they were telling me about um, challenges they were facing, there was one in particular, I was sitting with a lunch as business owner. They went from, in 12 months, they went from uh, their line of credit was maxed out. They just finished building a new headquarters. They'd just done an acquisition and their sales were slowing down and their bank was getting worried. In 12 months, they were hitting their stretch goals and how they did that and what tools helped. And, and the emotion in his his voice was so um, resonating. I was like, I got to share that with people. And so I started a podcast, the Confident ROI podcast, that uh, shares interviews with business leaders and talking about what tools work and don't work or aren't working in the business world so that other people can can choose the right tool to improve their business. What suggestions would you share with our listeners, Alex, to get them started, whether it's to evaluate as to what this is, whether this is what they need, or if they've already become convinced that they do need such a process to get started in the process, either by finding a consultant such as yourself or by leading this from within? Well, I appreciate the question, Elena. And I think for the listeners of Hispanic NPR, I would recommend that they they listen to their inner voice. And in the next week, keep a journal. When they're in a meeting or they get an email and they're getting bad news, they were or this is delayed, or we didn't win this proposal. Listen to the internal dialogue. Are you asking yourself questions on how to improve things, or is your mind making statements to dismiss it or rationalize it? And if you're, see where you're at. You're asking more questions, or are you making more statements? 
and watch people within or, your organization as well. That's a great first step just to be aware of what's going on. Of course, they can always contact me, but um, you know, that, it always starts from within. So what are there particular steps that they should take in preparation for this process? Well, it, it's, I, I, I talk about it in Chapter 2 of the book, and, and it's listening to their relationship with feedback and being aware of it, and then talking to people around them. Hey, how do I handle it when things don't go according to plan? Um, and then listening, being an observer in your meetings and in watching, you know, how how is this organization handling things? Is it trying to get to the root cause of problems, or is it dismissing and just dealing with the symptoms? So it's it's being aware, and the next step once they're aware, and let's say you're in an organization that's not asking a lot of questions, start asking questions. You have to do it in a in a in a safe way that does it's not threatening. But asking questions like, hey, who is our core customer? And it's got to be at the right time, but what's really most important right now for us? What's the most important thing? And, and if you start asking questions, it allows people on the other side to come to their own realization. And one of the things that in the neuroscience field they're finding nowadays is, and they found it, when somebody's own brain comes up with a realization, they... It, it means a lot more than when they're told, hey, we don't know who our core customer is. When they are asked about it, that that allows the brain, it's a better, you, you're not threatening the, the brain. So ask good questions and do it in a safe manner. And I would always recommend fewer questions, kind of learn learn how to ask them, learn the timing of it. But by asking questions and building on that, you can start to build that dialogue to, you know, we talked about the core customer, and a lot of companies don't have that. That's, that's, a, that's a process to get there if it's not answered. But when you start having that discussion, you start to get some momentum. And then, and then it comes out, hey, we might need some help to really solve the problem. How do we really sell to these customers? Thank you, Alex, for joining us from Boise, Idaho. Thank you for having me on, Elena. And to our audience, you have been listening to Alex Forobiev, who is author of Transform Your Company, who discussed how to get your company's momentum going again. Please share your suggestions, questions, and ideas by leaving a comment on the HispanicNPR.com website. If you or someone you know would like to be on the show, you can email me directly at editor at hispanicmpr.com. That's editor at hispanicmpr.com.